All right, so Matthew 28, we're going to look at verses 16 through 20. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we're going to be looking at that passage tonight. Um, Let's pray real quick. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage specifically. And we do pray that you would give us wisdom as we look at these words. Lord, especially on the calling that you have placed on each and every one of us, as well as the promise that comes at the end of it, that you will be with us always to the end of the age. And so we ask that you would speak to us tonight, guide us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and and when that thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little life-saving station, so it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with this station and give their time and their money and their effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, and new life-saving crews were trained, and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and, and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture and enlarged the building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do, the, to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and, and there, were, there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club held its initiations. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin and some had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was considerably messed up, so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. 
Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they, they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast a little ways, which they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred to the old one. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent, frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. The first time I heard this story was in the summer of 1995. Uh, a pastor shared this same illustration to a group that I was a part of back then. And it always stuck with me, for it speaks on how the, the mission of Christ's church can be forgotten and lost over time. And while the point of this illustration is to speak to churches who lose their way, I believe it can speak to individual Christians as well. For how often do we go about our lives not really thinking about what it is that Jesus has called us to? In the business world, this is called mission creep. It's where you get distracted by so many other things that you end up forgetting the purpose that your business was founded upon. And I think as Christians, we too can suffer from mission creep. We, we get that distracted by everything else that the world has to offer to us that we neglect the, the very calling that Jesus has placed upon our lives. And so my hope is that tonight we can kind of reorient ourselves to the mission of Christ's church, to the mission that Jesus himself gave to his disciples and that we would find that calling in the Great Commission. So what are these words that we call the Great Commission? These are the last words that Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, right? And when one is giving their last words, typically they're, they're trying to communicate something that is of great importance. And this is exactly what we have here in Matthew 28. Jesus was giving his marching orders to his disciples. He, he was communicating the, the very thing that, that, that we need to be giving our lives to. And so tonight, we're, we're going to look at these words and see what we can learn. But before we do, uh, I want us to take a few minutes and, and give you guys a, a bit of an overview of Matthew's gospel as a whole in order that we might see and, and understand everything that led up to Jesus giving this command. And what is the background to these significant words of Jesus Christ? Well, it begins in, in Matthew 1, verse 1. It, it reads as follows. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the verse that sets the stage, if you will, for for the journey that Matthew wants to, wants to take his reader through. And these verses, what they do is they focus us, focus us on three things. 
One, that, that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the son of David. And third, that he is the son of Abraham. So he is the Christ, he is the son of David, and he is the son of Abraham. Now when Matthew says that Jesus is a Christ, what he means is that he is the anointed king, also known as the Messiah. He, he is the one who is to rule over God's people as he establishes God's kingdom. But this is, this is also why he is known as the son of David, right? For, for David was promised by God that his house and, and his kingdom would endure forever, that his throne would be an eternal throne. And yet Jesus is also the son of Abraham. And what do we know about Abraham? That in, in the book of Genesis, God had made a covenant with Abraham that through Abraham's offspring, God would bless all the nations of the earth. And so this is who Jesus is. He, he is the Christ. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the son of David sitting upon that eternal throne and ruling over an eternal kingdom. And he is the son of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth find blessing through God. And this is what we will find as we read, if you read through Matthew's gospel. For not only is it an account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, but it is also an account about a kingdom and its king. And so you will discover quotes within Matthew of many Old Testament scriptures that, that find their fulfillment in Jesus. Prophecies concerning the restoration of God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew often puts it. And then in Matthew chapter 4, we, we hear the message of the kingdom first taught as Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, of all places, Right? Matthew 4, verse 17 says this. <clears throat> From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and so the, the call to the sinner is, is that of repentance. And, and the reason that, that the sinner needs to repent is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what does that mean? It means that the king has arrived. And that the king has come to judge his people, to judge all those who are loyal and those who are not loyal. And then shortly later in, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we, we see the wisdom of Christ's kingdom as Jesus first teaches us through the Sermon on the Mount. And so this king isn't just a, a king who's on a path of war. Rather, he is a king who is a teacher king. He is guiding his people. And then after that, Matthew gives us an account of the power of the kingdom, right? We see many stories where Jesus heals the sick, where he casts out demons and performs many miracles. And then Matthew gives witness to the expansion of the kingdom as well, as Jesus also enters into Gentile territory and brings the same saving message to those who are not Jews. And then later in Matthew's Gospel, he places a focus on Jesus' kingly glory. 
If you remember, Christ went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration where he revealed his godly nature to three of his disciples. And then, and then shortly after that, Matthew shows us the majesty of Jesus' presence as, as, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna to the Son of David. And yet he was a humble king, was he not? For he did not ride in on any war horse or on any chariot. Rather, he rode in on a lowly donkey. And yet when he did arrive, Matthew describes the impact of Christ's holy justice as he cleansed the temple courts, driving out the money changers and the sellers of doves. And because of this, and because of who Jesus claimed to be, it was the religious leaders who had rejected Christ's kingdom as they were constantly challenging Jesus concerning his messianic claims. Even so, Matthew then gives us a glimpse of the eschatological or or the future hope of the kingdom's consummation at the end of the age when Jesus gives his last sermon, his Olivet Discourse. This then led to the shocking turn of events as Matthew goes into full detail concerning the horrific sight of Jesus being arrested, tried, and sentenced to die on a cross. It was Christ who suffered for our sake when he wore that crown of thorns upon his head. When nailed above him was a sign that read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And yet not even death could restrain such kingly glory as three days later the tomb was found empty because Christ had risen just as he said, right? He has now defeated death and has brought victory to all, all who turn from their sins and trust in him. And now here in these last verses of Matthew's gospel, we are left asking the question, now what? Now that we know who Jesus is, now now that we know his kingly nature, now that we know his glory, now that we know all that he has done to rescue his people, to rescue us from our fallen state, what are we as his disciples supposed to do? Let's look at this last section of Matthew's gospel and find out. Look Look at verses... 16 and 17 of Matthew 28 one more time. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So the setting of Jesus' final words before his ascension was in the very same territory where Jesus had first declared the arrival of the kingdom, right? We're we're once again in Galilee. Jesus had directed his disciples to this specific mountain in order to give them his final instructions. And when Jesus came to them, what do we see them doing? They're, They're falling to their knees and worshiping their king. They're they're worshiping him. 
Now, if Matthew teaches us anything, it is that Jesus is God, right? Yes, God became a man. Yes, God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God and he is worthy of our worship. And so now we see these 11 men with their risen king worshiping him on this mountain in Galilee. In Galilee, not Jerusalem, in Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee, the place of humble beginnings. Galilee, that that region where Jesus started it all off. And, And now he will finish it there as well. And he will give to us his last instructions. Back in the... If you look back in Matthew chapter 8, we get this story where Jesus and his disciples were on a boat in the midst of a storm. And while the disciples were in a frantic state, thinking that they were about to die, what was Jesus doing? Anybody know? He was sound asleep, right? And so the disciples, they don't know what to do. And so they, they wake their master up in the hopes that he might have a solution. They, they cried out, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Listen to Jesus' response to them. This is Matthew chapter 8, verse 26. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And so with a single word, Jesus calmed the waves, and the wind stopped. And these same disciples were asking the question, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? These men no longer needed to ask that question, for they now knew who Jesus is, that he is God incarnate, that that he is Yahweh in human flesh, the only one who is worthy of their worship. And yet, what does the text say? But some doubted, right? Doubts in the resurrection? I mean, Jesus is standing right there. Doubts in who Jesus is? Perhaps. You see, even though these men saw their risen Savior standing right in front of them, even though the proof could be touched, it it could could be heard, there were still some who found it difficult to believe. But why doubt? Why why this hesitation in their faith? Well, if you've read through Matthew's gospel, then then you know that these men had always been slow to understand, right? And even near the end, when Jesus was arrested and put on trial, these 11 men, all 11 of them, had fallen away. And so there shouldn't be any surprise that some of them doubted. Though they saw their resurrected Lord with, with their own two eyes, they had yet to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. They had a faltering faith and were not yet the robust believers that we find in the book of Acts, right? We've been going through that book. Does Peter seem like he doubted? No. 
And yet they were not yet these spiritual giants that we read about that we will eventually come to know them by. But despite their doubts, despite their misgivings, they, they still worship Jesus nonetheless, right? And so what little faith they possessed had overcome their uncertainties. Their, their belief defeated their unbelief. And that's what true faith does, does it not? Let me ask each and every one of you, do you understand who Jesus is? Do do you know what he accomplished? That he is God in human flesh and that he has conquered death and offers eternal life to any who believe in him? Do you realize that you should be the ones bowing before him? That he is worthy of your worship? Do you believe this? And does that belief lead you into worship? Does your faith overcome your doubts? If this is you, if you believe in this Jesus and this one who died for your sins, in this king who defeated death by rising from the grave, then just like these 11 disciples, Jesus has some last words for you as well. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Think about that. This son of David who established an eternal kingdom has now been given all authority in both heaven and on earth. What does that mean? Has Jesus' authority suddenly become greater than what it was before? No, not really. Rather, what we see being expressed here is that the, the, the realms in which Jesus now exercises his authority have expanded. You see, during his earthly ministry, Jesus chose to limit himself for our sake. This is why in the wilderness, when, when he was being tested for 40 days and 40 nights, the devil took him to that high mountain, right? Where he offered to him the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down and worship him. You see, what Satan was doing here, he was offering Jesus a way to bypass the cross. Listen, at, at any moment during his earthly ministry, Jesus could have, could have just taken control with a snap of his finger. That's the type of authority he had. But he chose not to. Instead of ruling with an iron fist, he, he followed his Father's will and worked towards the salvation of sinful man. He chose the path of humility rather than the path of power. But now, now that he has died in our place, now that he has suffered for our sins, now that the tomb is empty, now that he is victorious over death itself, he has been granted all authority in both heaven and on earth. In essence, the, the Son has now become the mediator of the Father's will in all places. 
Look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We see this prophesied back then. This is Daniel. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Ring any bells? What Daniel is describing here is actually Christ's ascension, right? This prophetic scripture was about to be fulfilled before these disciples' very eyes. Jesus has now been given all authority in both heaven and on earth. And that means that there is not one place in this universe that he is not king. If you are in China... Jesus is king. If you are in North Korea, Jesus is king. If you are in Iran, Jesus is king. And if you are in Oxford, Michigan, or if you are in Shelby, Michigan, Jesus is king. And because Jesus is king, this has consequences upon your life. Look at, look at, back at Matthew 28. Look at verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Today, if, if you go to a church's website, what you will typically find is some sort of mission statement, right? And and these mission statements, they can be all over the map, depending on that church's biblical fidelity, right? I want to read to you a few that I found in order to kind of paint you a picture. The first one actually comes from the church I used to pastor. So First Congregational Church of Allegan, they're Their mission statement says, Our church exists to introduce people to Jesus Christ and to train those who already know him. It's not bad, right? And this one kind of actually gets at the heart of Christ's words in the Great Commission. How about this one? This this comes from Salem, Salem Lutheran Church. Imperfect people risking it all to make Jesus real one life at a time. Now, this one's short, it's catchy, it's kind of edgy, right? Yet it kind of lacks clarity. It could be interpreted in a a number of different ways, but I kind of see where they're going with this one. Let me throw one more out at you. This is from University Church in Chicago. This is long, too. Mission statements shouldn't be long. It says, We are a people committed to nurturing each other in spiritual journey through worship, Bible study, artistic expression, and Christian education. We celebrate our rich racial and cultural diversity through a broad scope of programming. We celebrate the family and nurture youth and young adults through mentoring and intentional programming, also preparing seminary students for ordination 
through leadership training. We advocate for social justice and accompaniment with the disinherited or disinherited of all geographies and circumstances. We partner with those of other faiths and backgrounds and share in collective work and responsibility in cooperative economics. I don't know if you know what all that means. I don't. And as far as I can tell, this really seems to have nothing to do with the Great Commission. In fact, the last part almost seemed like it has to do with the opposite of the Great Commission. Now, now when you look at these mission statements, we, ha we have the good, the, the okay, and the really bad, right? But what you will discover about all of them is that none of them are perfect, right? And so the question I have is this. Why not just use the words that Jesus gave us? Why not just use the Great Commission as your church's mission statement? I mean, it's already perfect, and it doesn't need to be changed. So what is the mission of the church? Well, the first thing we see is this command to go, right? Jesus says, go therefore. In other words, because Christ has, given, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, you are now to be active in his kingdom work. You are not to be idle. Rather, you are to be moving forward. You are not to sit still, but you are to go. But to go and do what? Because Jesus has all authority, you are to go and make disciples. So what does it mean to make a disciple? Well, it means to bring a person into a relationship of that of a student to a teacher. For that's what a disciple is. It is a student who is following a master. And so to make a disciple means to find someone who is not following Jesus and then change that person into someone who is now following Jesus. But how does such a drastic change come about? How does someone who has either rejected Christ or have not even known about Christ suddenly become his follower? Well, it's through the proclamation of the gospel, right? Through the preaching of the good news. In other words, we as Christ's church, are called to evangelize. We are to call out the sin of those who are in danger and warn them of the danger that they are in. And then we are to point them to Jesus, to the one who died for their sins, to the one who can rescue them from those eternal flames, to the one who can bring to them everlasting life through his victorious resurrection. For it is only through him that a man can be saved. And so in essence, to make a disciple, we are to preach a message of a repentant life. A life that, that, that can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the message is to repent and to believe. To repent from your sins and to believe in Jesus. For he truly is the only one who can rescue us. And so this is your job, right? You are to go. You are to proclaim this message, trusting that Jesus has all authority. 
even the authority to change a person's heart from that of unbelief to belief. You are to go and seek converts to the the Christian faith. But to whom are you to go, right? What kind of people is Christ sending you to? Well, because Jesus has all authority, you are to go and make disciples of all nations. In the Old Testament, the promise was that the nations would come to Mount Zion, that God would establish his kingdom, and that all the other kingdoms would be drawn to Jerusalem. We, we read about this in the, in the book of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so what is described here are the nations flowing to Jerusalem, right? They're flowing upward, up a mountain. And yet what we see in the Great Commission is a bit of a reversal, is it not? The flow is no longer inward, rather it is outward. Instead of the nations coming to Zion... Jesus is bringing Zion to the nations and he is using his church to do so. And so we as disciples of Jesus, we are to go forth. We are to we are to move outward. We are to take this message to every tribe, to every tongue, and to every kingdom. You see the nations will not stream to Zion until Zion streams to them. And that's because Jesus is not just a Jewish king, but he has dominion over heaven and earth. He is the son of Abraham, remember? Whose blessing spreads to every nation, every people group. And so it is to them that you are to go. You are to go to the people of Oxford. You are to go to the people here in Shelby, Michigan. You are to go to the people throughout the Midwest, people on the East Coast, people on the West Coast, people in Europe, people in, in, in Africa, people in Asia, people in Australia, North Americans, South Americans, and even the islands, right? Big and small ones. Understand this. There, there is no place on this earth where you have not been commanded to go to go and proclaim this good news. And so your aim should be to share the gospel to all people without distinction. And no, this is not an easy task. For, for not everyone is going to receive you well. And just as the wor- world hated Jesus, so too the world will hate you. You may be ridiculed, you may be mocked, You may be called to suffer hardship. You may even have to die for your king. Yet you are to go nonetheless 
and bear witness to those around you, calling them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. For that is what a true disciple of Jesus does. He, he counts the cost, picks up his cross, and follows wherever his Lord leads him. And yet the job doesn't end with evangelism, does it? For once you make a disciple, once that person turns from their sins and, and places their faith in Jesus as their Messiah, then, then you are to baptize them, right? Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we had some baptisms just recently, right? Did I get some hands of people who got baptized this summer? Awesome. And so when we baptize people, we are welcoming them into the kingdom as a brother and sister in the Lord. For if they truly do belong to Jesus, then they will desire to be obedient to Jesus. And so we are to help people on this journey, and that first step is through baptism. But baptism is just the beginning, right? For then Jesus, what does he say to us? He, he says that we are to teach them, right? Teach them to obey everything that he has commanded us. And so what are we to teach them? everything, right? Not just a little, not just the parts that we like, but everything. And where do we find everything? In God's Word. This means that we need to be students ourselves. We need to be digging into our Bibles that we might become knowledgeable and, and be able to teach. And so my question for you is, how often are you in God's Word? Are you seeking out Christ's wisdom every day? And if not, why not? For, for it is in this book right here that we, that we find wisdom greater than any other wisdom. So why would you not avail yourself to it? Listen, if, if you're going to be a true disciple of Jesus, then, then you must be a student of Jesus as well. But not only a student, but then you must pass it on to those who come after you. And so if you're going to be a true disciple of Jesus, then you also need to be a, a teacher of his word. This is your calling. Well, to summarize this all, because Jesus has all authority, you are to go. You are to be active in your faith. And you are to make disciples. You are to proclaim the good news, the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his ascension, that Jesus is now ruling from heaven above. And you are to proclaim this message to whom? All people, all nations, to every man, woman, child that God has placed before you. And then you are to baptize those people as you welcome them into God's kingdom. And then you are to teach them. Teach them to obey what? Everything, right? Everything that Christ has commanded you. And so we must be masters of God's word. And this is not an easy task. 
And in fact, it will require sacrifice on your part. And I, I see sleepy eyes out there with you kids. I know it's not easy to sit through a message like this. Don't worry, tomorrow will be much more fun. You'll have Miss, Mrs. Kim. She'll be teaching you guys. There'll be activities. I don't know. It'll be great. Um, but it's sacrifice, right? But it's what Jesus has commissioned us to do. This is our birthright. And, and here's the good news. Jesus, he doesn't just give you this command and then push you out the door. No. What does the end of our passage say? What, is, what are Jesus' last words? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so our gospel calling doesn't end with a command Rather, it ends with a promise, a promise of Christ's reassuring presence. Behold, I am with you always. Jesus, this one who has been given all authority in both heaven and on earth, he will be right by your side. He promises to be there even to the end of the age. I mean, think about that. No matter where you are, no matter who you are witnessing to, this one who holds ultimate authority is right there with you. The king of kings, the one who rules over everything is going to be right by your side. And so if you are faithful to his calling, if you are true to his commission, then you cannot fail, right? And it doesn't get any better than that. It's like playing one-on-one -on -one basketball, except you have a teammate. And that teammate is Michael Jordan, right? Who's going to win that game? Yeah. Do you guys see it? When you are a part of the Great Commission, then you have teamed up with the only one who never, ever fails. And how encouraging is that? So, dear friends, now that you know who Jesus is, now that you know what Jesus has done, now that you know the type of authority that Jesus has, and now that you know that Jesus is with you, will you go? Will you be faithful to your calling by making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded you. For if you will do this, then you will be in God's will. And when you are in God's will, you cannot fail. For you have Jesus right by your side. And so what now? We're to go. We're to proclaim this message to everyone that comes across our path. Let's pray. Father, we truly are so thankful for your son. He is our king. And we are grateful for the, the kindness that you have shown to us by rescuing us from our sins. And so we pray that you would 
direct our, set, our steps, that you would help us to be bold witnesses as we go forth and make disciples, as we are baptizing those who, who come into the faith, and as we are teaching them while we ourselves are yet students. And we take comfort in the fact that your son, this one who has all authority, comes alongside us in this mission. And so we lift up the name of our king and as we pray these things in his mighty name. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.